0: Well, a quick reminder, we have left our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew for the season of Advent. And over four Sundays leading up to our Advent and carol service on Christmas Eve, we are going to examine some of the passages in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that foreshadow the coming of Christ, which Advent is all about. And so this week, we come to the second batch of uh, passages. There are several passages, and so I've tried to group them together. Uh, This week, we are looking at both the beginning of Abraham's call and the climax of it in Genesis 12 and 22. If you think back to last week, we are kind of on a trajectory, or maybe a better way to picture it is an hourglass, where last week in the midst of the sinning of Adam and Eve, there came out of what was otherwise a moanful passage. We actually had children moaning during the reading, which was quite appropriate because people were sinning and things were turning sour left and right. And then in the middle of it, there was a promise that an offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, who is clearly in the larger biblical picture, the devil. And yet that serpent would also harm the offspring of Eve and it all hung in a way on a word seed, and there's a word play on seed. When you think about it, seed is singular, right? But seed can also be um, plural, seeds. Seed is collective. It refers to one thing, but at the same time, you think in terms of multiplicity. So um, it was in part due to um, James's, um, my friend's teaching, that I came to look especially for the word seed in the Pentateuch, And we'll see today that the word seed, uh, on a first reading, it simply refers to Abraham's offspring. But the singularity of that word, the collective singular seed, can also be read with a single focus to make us think about one individual. And that one individual is none other than Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a look in the time that we have today at two passages, both of which are narrative masterpieces. And we're going to begin in a moment by looking at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, the call of Abraham. And the call of Abraham is actually probably the most underestimated Messianic text that there is. I don't know of it occurring on a list of Messianic passages, but I hope that by the end of our time today that you will see that it is indeed Messianic. Before we come to that, let's paint the big picture, and I want to invite you to turn to the last page of our outline. It's on the very back. And if you don't have an outline, or there are a number of people that don't have an outline, Cole, maybe you could share yours with uh, Cody and um, Sandra with Nicole, anybody else without an outline? I think there might be a few more at the photocopier, but um, we're all good. Okay. Well, this is, a, this is a picture. Everybody got one at least between the two of you? That's great, good. This is a picture of what, uh, of what was going on in the preceding 11 chapters. Remember, we've just stepped into Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 11, we see the work of God in two cycles, uh, one of which began with Adam and which ended with um, sin and the destruction of the world in the flood. And then after the flood, Noah was kind of a second Adam. It was a rebooting of creation, as it were. The computer was wiped clean by the, by the flood and then was rebrooted. So we have creation under Adam and disintegration leading to God's judgment of the flood. And then with Noah, we have recreation. But again, it leads to disintegration. We can see God's purposes in what I have outlined um, uh, in terms of the, um, the, the italics. God says in Genesis one twenty eight. That he wants blessing. God says in Genesis 9, 1, again, that his intent is to bless the world. But at the end of the judgment in chapter 11, there's simply scattering. And there's no reference to blessing. And so the question arises, have things really fallen fallen apart? And how is God going to um, continue his purposes? It seems as though um, the the flood was a rebooting, but the same thing happened over and over again. It wasn't very long before Noah and those who were righteous in the ark proved themselves to be as sinful as were Adam and Eve and their ancestors. And so at the bottom, uh, under effective structure, there's there's a, um, a summary. A cycle of futility has developed that needs to be broken. No solution is offered... Accept the call of Abraham that follows. Through you, all peoples on earth will find blessing. So, at the beginning of chapter, actually towards the end of chapter 11, with the genealogy of one of Abraham's ancestors named Terah, it's clear that God is continuing his global focus, but he's doing that on a much more individual plane. Can the world really be changed by small individual things? Think of what happened three years ago in Wuhan, maybe in a lab or in a fish market, tiny localized little event that had global implications. This is in effect the reverse of that. God's plan to bring blessing to the whole world is going to take place through one of the people who's in the line of this seed that we read about last week. And that is Abraham. And we're going to see it continue in Isaac. And next week, we'll learn that the focus will continue in the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 offspring of Jacob. So that's by way of background. And there's a cosmic backdrop to what God is doing here. It's not that God has given up on the world and decided, okay, well, I'm just going to focus on this individual and bless a family instead of the world. No, we will soon see that the call of Abraham becomes the means by which the promise of the gospel and the blessing that is ours even today originates. Verse 1, and it's in the translation on your handout, and I would encourage you to to look at it if you you have it. It's a little bit, um, it's what I will be following. Yahweh said to Abram, Make your way, hard as it is, From your land and from your king and from your family unit to the land which I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, that you may be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and curse him that disdains you. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed." That last phrase, through all the families and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Someone has commentated that this is the theological heart of the entire book of Exodus or the entire book of Genesis. And in fact, it's the theological heart of the book of Genesis right through to the end of the Kings. Pretty much everything that happens is a continuation of what we're seeing here. God planning to bless the world through the offspring of Abram. Let's notice a few things about it, even before we continue. God says, make your way. He's going to say exactly the same thing if you look down at the bottom of the page uh, in verse two of Genesis 22. He said, please take your son, your only one whom you love, Isaac, and make your way toward the land of Moriah. So God is sending Abram on a mission and it's, uh, it's a tough call. He's being asked to leave everything that he knows and everything that he's familiar with. He's to go from his land, from his kin, and from his family unit to the land that I will show you. It's sort of like um, a travel agent who you have to trust a whole lot. Uh, you're being told to pay by committing, and then, oh yeah, we're gonna send you somewhere nice. Just trust me, it's okay. Well, you might not want to trust the travel agent, because the travel agent is a sinner like you and me, but Abraham was wise enough to follow and to trust. And God gave him a promise that motivated him to trust. And the promise consists of seven statements. Just like there was from your land, from your kin, and from your family, three, three lines. And just as there is in our liturgy, O oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. O oh Lord, have mercy upon us. We like we like threesomes in this Trinity-believing church of ours. We have three statements. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make you, your name great. These are not I shalls, but they are I wills. Um, if you remember your English lessons and the difference between shall and will, which is hard to keep track of because it depends changes depending on what person you're using, whether it's I or second person or third person, but anyway, the I will is resolve. I want you to leave to a land that I will show you, and I will make you into not a great people. This is not the word for people. This is the word that pictures a country, a state. As soon as you see this word, think of a flag and a governmental head, And a language that is shared. And this is why I think this passage is messianic. God is seeing in Abraham and in the promise that he's giving to Abraham the foundation of the state of Israel several centuries later. And it continues with both blessing and the promise of fame. And in the middle is this word be a blessing. And it's both uh, a statement of resolve as an imperative. And I like to sort of think, uh, if you're looking for a mission in life, this would be a good one. Move out and be a blessing. You're not Abraham. I'm not Abraham. Abraham was special. You and I are an ordinary Joes. But still, I don't know what to do with my life. <laughs> Move out and be a blessing. Now, I don't mean move out in the case of some of you parents who might be wishing that your kids would finally leave home. Maybe, that is, maybe that's the mandate for them. But no, just kind of get on your way and make your way forward and be a blessing. What could be a better motto for life? Stick it on your, uh, on your office door uh, or write it uh, somewhere where you're going to see it, a fridge magnet or something like that. Uh, and think of the implications that this had for Abraham. The blessing continues. I will bless those who bless you. This is wide sweeping. And should anyone so much as hold you in disdain, I will curse them. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, we see Abram responding obediently. He gets up, he takes his wife and uh, his nephew, Lot, and all their possessions, and off they go to the land of Canaan, and they arrive there. As soon as they arrive there, What do we read in verse 7? Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, after he had obeyed, to your seed, I will give this earth. Now, think of that word seed. Now, I've called this passage messianic, God's messianic promise to Abram. Why is it messianic? Well, we've already seen that God promised Abram a nation, but in fact, scholars have researched what kings like and what God's promise to kings in the ancient Near East. And if you aspire to be a king in the ancient Near East, just like you might aspire maybe to be the head of a government today, there are a couple of things you're going to need. And on the top most wanted list of kings in the ancient Near East included several things. Uh, Statehood. You need need a country if you want to be a king of it. Um, You need fame. And acceptance. Um, And you need uh, to be um, a medium of a blessing. And all of these different criteria are there in this uh, one uh, passage. So it's something that is promised. Nationhood, a great name, divine protection, and mediatorship, of blessing. It's in the third little end note on your handout that you can look at later. Wenham says, what Abraham is here promised was the hope of many an oriental monarch. So what we find here is God is seeing in Abraham David as a way, in a sense. Now clearly uh, Saul was the first king, but David was the one who took the kingdom and who acted righteously and under whose oversight that kingdom spread to other nations. And at one point, Uh, The kingdom of David was um, included other surrounding territories. So here we have the establishment of the promise, the continuation of the promise that we find in Genesis 3.15. Now we come to Genesis 22, and with it is a climax to the promise and a foreshadowing of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that is going to be the means by which this promise is fulfilled. And I want to read it... um, and invite you to read it along with me, and I will not help but be able to, um, I won't be able to do justice to the passage, but this is one of the finest pieces of literature in world literature. There's nothing uh, comparable to it, or there's certainly nothing better than it in, um, in Hebrew literature. After these events, it was God himself who tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am, sir. And he said, please take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and make your way, hard as it is, toward the land of Moriah, and offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. There's a similarity here. There's a harking back to Genesis 12. There's another move out, and it's a tough call again. And it's interesting to note that in that word, make your way, and this isn't something that's that's possible to translate, but there is a sympathy on the part of God. When God here says, make your way, he's not sort of like a drill sergeant, but the way in which the Hebrew is worded reminded me of a parent on the first day of your five or six year old or seven year old going to school. It's early September. You've had a summer together. Picture this young mothers who are not at that stage yet, The first day you put your kid on a school bus, the door opens. This person you don't know from Adam is there behind the wheel saying, come on, and your little baby is going to get on that bus and find a seat, and you're going to watch them just drive off. Well, the parent is trying to hold back and be brave for the child, and I can see a parent as that little kid is holding the lunchbox and kind of turning around, looking to mom or dad to see if it's okay, and mom or dad saying, off you go then. It's kind of an encouragement, but it's a heartfelt encouragement. And there's a little extra preposition in the Hebrew that indicates, which is why I've translated, hard as it is. God is no tyrant. He's going to sound like a tyrant in a minute, but we're told that it's a test. So we can relax from the very beginning. It's like one of those things that comes on the uh, your your cell phone or your TV where you hear this. You know, minu, me, minu, me, minu, me, this is the test. In case of an emergency, you are to find a shelter and start praying because the world is coming to an end. You know, you, you, you just sort of say, okay, well, I know when I recognize that sound, this is just a test. So we know it's a test, and we can read the story comfortably. But Abraham doesn't know it's a test, and that's the whole point. Watch for the way in which the story slows down and speeds up. When God calls him, Abraham And he said, here I am, sir, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and make your way toward the land of Moriah, and offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. All of a sudden, it goes from super slow to super fast. What do we read next? Abram's response is incredible. There's no emotion in it. Abram rose early the next morning, we read in verse 3, saddled his donkey, took two of his lads with him, and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place where God himself had told him. The pace is quick to indicate that Abram is responding dramatically, with complete obedience. There's no emotion conveyed here. It's simply Abraham is... Lickety-split in response. And then it begins to slow down, but it's really going to slow down in a minute. Verse 4, On the third day, Abram lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. A little time out to deal with the servants who have come with him. And Abraham said to his lads, Stay here by yourselves with the donkey. As for me and the lad, we will go over there. We intend to worship and then return to you. Abram took the wood of the burnt offering and set it on Isaac, his son. But he took in his hand the igniter and the knife. The father carries the dangerous implements. The son carries what is for now harmless. And now the boy is carrying wood on his back, but later in the story, the story will be inverted, and the boy will be on top of the wood. And those implements which are safely in the hands of a trustworthy father are going to be turned against him. Then the narrator frames the dialogue between Abraham and Isaac. It's framed by the words, the two of them walked together. You see, I have that that way in the translation. It's, it, it's, a, it's, it's a father and son, uh, tete-a-tete. That is framed by a walk together. Uh, I found in my own experience as the father of sons, sometimes you want to have a good visit with your son or you want to have a good visit with your brother or your brother-in-law. It probably happens with women too. I don't know, but go for a walk. There's something about walking that just has a way of opening up. It's a little bit like going to the barber. You know, before you know it, you're telling things that you didn't likely mean to tell before you went on a walk or went to the barber. The two of them are walking together, and finally, Isaac pops the question. And notice the slowness. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father. And he said, my father? And Abraham said, here I am, my son. And then, oh my gosh, you see the wheels turning in the the head of the boy in a way that you were kind of hoping he might not have. Behold, he said, the boy, the igniter and the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram said, It is God who will provide a lamb for the sacrifice, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. They came to the place of which he had told them, namely, God himself. The narrator wants you to have no mistake. This is not... Anyone other than God who is telling Abram to do these things, and so once again we see the obedient Abram. And Abram built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound Isaac his son and set him on the altar on top of the wood. Again, lickety split. Abram stretched out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And just like in in one of those one of those great suspense filled movies when you know the bomb is about to go off in five seconds, it gets diffused. You know. All of a sudden, Abraham's got his arm up in the air to plunge the dagger into his son. And an agent of Yahweh called out to him from the heavens and said, Abraham, Abraham. Here's Abraham again, same posture as he's been twice before. Here I am, sir. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Does God care? Listen, or do anything harmful to him. For now I know that you revere God since you refused to withhold your son, your favored one, from me. Abram lifted up his eyes and saw a ram, just then held in a thicket by the horns, by its horns. So Abram went and took the ram and offered it on the burnt offering instead of his son. And Abram called the name of that place, Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh will look after on account of which it is said even today, on the mountain. Probably won't surprise you if you have read this story carefully to hear that a good summary of the passage would be, God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. My son. God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. My son. As the story continues, I want us to notice that again the promise is reaffirmed. Whenever a promise of God, at least this promise of God, seems to be threatened, or when the circumstances seem to pile up against the promise of God, it's often reassured. An agent of Yahweh called unto Abraham a second time from the heavens, and he said, I myself am oath-bound, says Yahweh, on account of this thing that you have done, namely, refuse to withhold your son, your favored one. I will certainly bless you, and I will certainly multiply your seed like the stars of heaven and the sands on the seashore. So there you have to read seed plural, right? And your seed will possess the gate of his enemies. This is a reckoning again of... um, You, uh, he, that is Eve's offspring, will crush the head of Satan. Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and through your seed shall all the nations of the earth bless each other, or find blessing. Through the focal point of this seed, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the hourglass again expands to bring blessing to the world. Because Abram listened to the voice of God. It's worth much more time looking at the passage than, than, than we have. I just want you to notice, and it's worth paying attention to, for reasons like this. Verse 19. Abraham returned to his lads, and they arose and walked together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. Doesn't mention Isaac. And I think the narrator's point is, as far as God was concerned, Isaac was sacrificed. Because God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. And indeed, the most apt sacrifice is one that involves obedience. So Abram comes down the mountain both with Isaac and without him, as it were, because he passed the test. Well, friends, if we're looking for lessons, which I fear sometimes we do too much. You know, some people judge a good church by the number of takeaway lessons you get so that you can survive the week at work, and that's good. But too many of those lessons turn the gospel into sort of uh, pop psychology, self-help. And there's good pop psychology and self-help here that is actually divinely inspired. I mean, move out and be a blessing. But if you're looking for one main theme of this passage, I think it would be the one that's at the top of page one. Just as Abraham discovered, or the, the, uh, the translation, just as Abraham discovered that to obey God could not possibly jeopardize his own best good, so the story asserts that to obey God cannot possibly be inimical to God's larger plan. It is by such profound personal obedience that the larger plan moves forward. You see, it's all God and it's all Jesus. It's all by grace and it's all by faith. But God in his providence allows us, through our obedience, to take part in what's going on and to be part of the means by which the promise is carried forward. And so we see this in Genesis chapter 22. And I just want to remind you by by referring um, to um, what I have. Usually I get lost when I take you to my own notes further back. Um, It's on the top of page 5. And here's an encouragement, not simply to believe, but to respond to God in obedience. Top of page 5, line 2. As Moberly notes, there's something relevant in relation to Abraham's obedience here. And he says, this is an evangelical Old Testament scholar in Gloucester in England. Abraham, by his obedience, has not qualified to be the recipient of blessing because the promise of blessing had been given to him already. Rather, the existing promise is reaffirmed, but its terms of reference are altered. A promise which previously was grounded solely in the will and purpose of Yahweh is transformed so that it is now grounded both in the will of Yahweh and in the obedience of Abraham. It's not that the divine promise has become contingent upon Abraham's obedience, but that Abraham's obedience has been incorporated into the divine promise. Henceforth, Israel owes its existence, not just to Yahweh, but also to Abraham. If you're looking for a takeaway today, and those are perfectly appropriate, we all have bad weeks, we all need uh, a little um, spiritual exercise and encouragement. Do your darndest, by God's grace, to obey his will. And you will find yourself having the pleasure of participating in what God is doing in the world. You kind of feel like, man, I'm a little pawn on God's chessboard. And I just got moved from one place to another to help capture the king on the other guy's table. That's what the promise to the seed was all about. So yes, it's all by grace. Yes, it's all by faith. But friends, our obedience is important. And here, however, we thank God for the obedience of Abraham. But much more, the obedience that Abraham's obedience prefigured. I want to close by saying a little bit about a method of interpretation called typology. And for this, we can go again to page 5. This passage is a type. Now, what is typology? Well, funny you should ask. It's in italics on page five. Typology is a method of interpreting the Bible that derives meaning from and significance to a biblical passage is deriving meaning from based on the strong similarities that exist between individuals, circumstances, and sometimes even structures or institutions in two separate texts almost always one in the NT and almost always one in the the other in the OT. The comparative features in the former text are understood to picture or otherwise foreshadow the similar feature in the latter. I'll bet you you did this instinctively when you heard God say, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him up. You were probably saying, that's what my heavenly father did. He did that with his own son. Well, my friends, your theological sensibilities are right on that mark. And in fact, this passage is so potent that there are a number of ways in which the passage could be interpreted typologically. And I will simply name them and then um, be quiet and sit down. Something my parents often told me to do and something you might be tempted to do just now. First of all, Abraham can be seen as a type of Christ. It was the great Old Testament scholar, um, inspired as he was as a Lutheran by the theology of the cross of Martin Luther that saw Abraham as a type of Christ. Now You might think Abraham's more of a type of God because it was Abraham's son and his God's son. But if you think of Abraham and the journey that he took and how it is similar to the journey that Jesus had to take in response to the obedience of God, you see the picture. So in a way, Abraham is a type of Christ. Another scholar, the same fellow from Gloucester that I quoted earlier, has described Abraham as a type of our call to discipleship. Jesus calls us to carry our cross, to pick it up and to follow him, even though that might result in our death. And so Abraham functions as a type of Christ and perhaps also as a type of our own call to follow Christ. But the one that you probably remember the most or the one that you thought of the most was to understand Isaac as the type or the ram as the type. And scholars, being the nerds they are, they will sometimes argue, no, the ram is the type. No, Isaac is the type. Stop. You can have it both ways. Put one and two together and you got the deal. So Isaac is is the type of Christ up to a point. And then the ram carries on. And the ram was the animal that was offered on the Day of Atonement. So this is God foreshadowing the atoning sacrifice of his son. But if you only look at it in terms of the Old Testament, which is legitimate, this story also prefigures for Israel God's plan to provide a system of sacrifice that would sustain Israel until Jesus comes. The animals that are in the story and the location of the story, Moriah, which is Jerusalem where the temple was built all prefigure the fact that even for Israel, prior to the time of Christ, God was going to provide a system of sacrifices whereby people could offer a ram instead of themselves and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Please take this spotless animal, this precious animal, and I offer it up as a way of saying I'm sorry for my sin. And please accept this as an atoning sacrifice. My friends, if you don't know the story and you haven't personalized it, Jesus Christ died on the cross to substitute for the sins that we confessed at the beginning. And the good news is that whereas we deserve death, God provided a ram on that mountain as a sacrifice so that we might be off the hook in the same way that Isaac was. By trusting in God and in His atoning sacrifice, we are forgiven, and we too can walk together with him, hand in hand, knowing that we have a loving Father. On the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. Come Christmas, and after that, Easter. Amen.